Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a major retrospective of Imogen Cunningham at the J. Paul Getty Museum. You may remember this show. It was scheduled for June 2020 and was one of the first exhibitions to be postponed because of pandemic closures. Well, it's finally made it to the Getty, where it will be on view through June 12th. Cunningham had a remarkable 75-year career that touched on seemingly every movement in American art and photography between the first decade of the 20th century and her death in 1976. She is particularly well-known for her address of pictorialism, her turn to modernism, as well as her street photography, nudes, and portraits. Nearly two years ago now, I spoke with exhibition curator Paul Martineau about the exhibition and the fantastic catalog he edited. Martineau has curated some of my favorite exhibitions of the last decade or so, including the Getty's stunning 2009 Paul Outerbridge survey. On the second segment, my 2020 conversation with Marie Watt on the occasion of ongoing exhibitions in San Diego and Salem, Massachusetts. But first, Paul Martineau, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Virtual Realities, the Art of M.C. Escher from the Michael S. Sachs Collection. The world premiere of the most extensive Escher collection ever held is now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Discover the connection between math and art through Escher's mind-bending puzzles. This special exhibition is on view for a limited time. Get your tickets at mfah.org slash mcescher. Getty invites you to a visual celebration of Imogen Cunningham, one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. On view at the Getty Center through June 12, 2022, Imogen Cunningham, a retrospective, brings together nearly 200 of the artist's insightful portraits, elegant flower and plant studies, poignant street pictures, and groundbreaking nudes. Join Getty for the first major retrospective of her work in the United States in more than 35 years and discover how this extraordinary artist pushed boundaries for both women and photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. And we're back. Paul Martineau, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. I think that before we can address Imogen Cunningham's career and work, it's worth the spotlighting that she lived a, a very long life and had an almost impossibly <laughs> long career. She, she was born in 1883, and the last work in the book and in the exhibition to be, or the exhibition that is but isn't up yet, <laughs> was made 90 years later, and she only began to really receive the scholarly attention she deserved when she was 80. So obviously it goes without saying that sexism was and is a factor, but are there ways in which you think the sheer extraordinary length of her career made it difficult for her work to be embraced? That certainly is a factor, but also I think one of the things that complicated things for Imogen 
is that she constantly shifted with her time. That she started off doing pictorialist pictures in the soft focus style. Then she switched to a modernist straight photography and was doing plants. And then later on, she was doing street pictures in the 1940s and 50s. And then in the 70s, she became someone who was doing pictures that looked more candid. So this gradual changing of her own style and subject matter, very hard for people to put a finger on her, to kind of label her as one type of photographer or another. And portraits all the while, or much of the while. That's right. I think that was what she considered her special talent. We will get to portraits in a little bit. Cunningham grows up in Seattle, and while I don't want to spend too much time in biography because there are lots of great pictures to talk about, I want to introduce how you think Gertrude Casabir and Francis Benjamin Johnston informed Cunningham's work. How did she know of them? What do you think she took from them? Well, certainly she was looking at the periodicals of the time, like Camera Notes and Camera Work, and the first issue of Camera Work featured Gertrude Kazebeer. It was dedicated to her. The article that introduced Kazebeer was written by Francis Benjamin Johnson. So these two artists were pioneers in their field, and Cunningham certainly would have been well apprised of the pathways they took to become famous photographers. Listeners may remember that we talked about those two photographers with Kathleen Pine when we talked about her new Ann Brigman book a few months ago. We'll have a link to that show on manpodcast.com. There's a, it's not a plate, it's a figure in the book of a portrait made of Cunningham at the Curtis Studio in the Pacific Northwest. Do you know, do we know if Ella McBride informed or influenced Cunningham? Well, we know that they worked there together, but we really don't know what kind of influence she might have had on Imogen, other than she was, you know, somebody that had gained a certain amount of success in the business world. Cunningham starts out as a pictorialist. There are a couple dozen plates of her pictorialism in the book and in the show to be. Is, is there anything uh, about her approach to pictorialism and her pictorialist pictures that you think particularly stand out within the thing? The picture that's called The Dream is extremely beautiful. And I think the way that it she's handled the light in that picture, it became, becomes um, so completely otherworldly. And it seems to be inspired by her sitter, who was known somewhat as a clairvoyant, that Cunningham is modulating the light in such a way that the picture seems to glow from within. We'll we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's reminiscent of spirit photography. (laughs) Yes. From the late 19th century. That's right. Cunningham's pictorialism is different from some other Westerners in that there are landscapes, full stop. There are pictures of people, full stop. And she's not doing the humans in nature thing the way Anne Brigman did it. Do we have a lot of textual material from the early part of Cunningham's career in which she lays out her ideas about what she wanted those pictorialist pictures to include? There isn't really any statements by her that include, you know, her recipe for what she was trying to do, but... She often 
mixed landscape and uh, figures in a way that would give rise to thoughts of the kind of Arthurian legends and mythologies that were neo-romantic. She was a great follower of the pre-Raphaelite artists and used some of their imagery to inspire her own pictures in nature. She started making portraits around 1910 or so. There's a terrific portrait in the show of Claire Shepard, miniaturist from 1910. It's a very Julia Margaret Cameron, maybe influenced picture. When and why did she start making portraits or having the opportunity to start making portraits? Well, certainly she started making portraits as the kind of first thing that she did out of the gate because it was the kind of easy thing to do. She started her portrait studio in Seattle in 1910, and she became renowned in the community for the kind of beauty and honesty of her pictures. She didn't use a lot of props for her pictures in her commercial work or special backgrounds, and she always used natural light, and she was very talented at making these compositions. Very shortly, she had a good business making pictures for the local residents of Seattle at the time. There were a lot of women who were running Pacific Coast portrait studios in those years. I guess, I suppose that must have been a path that was particularly available. Yes. And, you know, portraiture wasn't on the high end of the hierarchy of genres, so it was considered more appropriate for women than, you know, doing something much more ambitious in the early 1920s, she begins to take a, 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 tor- a turn toward a, mo- a more modernist portrayal. There is a terrific picture called Torso of 1923, which it seems to me in your presentation is kind of the hinge. I guess, is that picture a hinge? And what kind of guided or informed her transition? She was looking at the works of other artists as well. She was particularly interested in the nude, which was unusual for female photographers at the time. And she was making pictures of nude men and women in the 1910s. And that ended up causing a scandal where she was called an immoral woman by the local paper. And she put it away for a while until things cooled off. And then she became interested again in the human body and how it looked in front of the camera. The picture that you're referring to is of a dancer and the way that dancers keep their bodies in shape and move their bodies must have been particular of a particular interest to her. I mean, one of the reasons I think Torso is an interesting picture is that one can find within it ways in which it comes out of pictorialism, but in its radical shadowing and a really strong diagonal, it also seems to point toward modernism. In her practice, was it a sudden thing? Was it a gradual thing? Is this an image that's a real pivot? I think that it is an extremely important image. And she's looking and framing the human body in ways that were quite revolutionary. I think, for the time, getting in really tight and showing the textures of the skin and the folds of the the skin was something new. In the mid-1920s, she starts making photographs of of plants. 
what 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 started her 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 turn toward sharply modernist compositions featuring plants pictures like flax from 1926 which is pretty wow level right well at that time Cunningham had small children to tend to and she was having trouble getting out of the house and making her pictures she spent a lot of time in her garden where she started planting different kinds of plants and flowers, and then she used them as her uh, subject matter, sometimes taking them into the house or sometimes bringing black cloth or whiteboard out to the garden so that she could isolate the plants from the surroundings, all the while using natural light. And it's that California light that produces those kind of stark contrasts. Uh, that she seems to really rejoice in, in her prints. There is this moment in American modernist painting, you know, of this period and a little bit earlier, where kind of in the, the, the late throes of the American interest in nature, artists are taking kind of a final pass at flowers and plants. Do you think she was informed by the Demoths and the Sheelers and their interest in modernist portrayals of plants and flowers or, or Weston on the east on the West Coast with photography or maybe none of the above? She certainly was aware because she was a voracious reader and looked at all of those, the art books she could get her hands on. So I think that these must have had an influence. If you just think of the calla lily, that the calla lily was one of the most photographed and painted pictures throughout the 1920s. And although people think that Imogen might have been influenced by Georgia O'Keeffe, she always claimed that that wasn't the case. We will have an image of that one, uh, of Calla Lily, on, on manpodcast.com as well. As Cunningham is making pictures of plants and flowers, pictures which are often thoroughly sexual, She's also returning to the body and, and making more pictures of nudes. Is that coincidental? Is she thinking of a broader, more pointed project? I think that these things go in hand in hand because she was looking at universal forms in nature, whether they be in the human body or in botanical specimens that she found or planted in her garden. It was this quest for the geometric forms that uh, she found in things all around her. There's a great picture of a magnolia blossom from 1925 that both reminds me of Martin Johnson Heed in the late 19th century and his painting, which I imagine she must have been aware of. But I also look at that picture and think, I've never seen a magnolia flower that perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, they're usually a little bruised. There's usually browning on the edges of the petals, but this one's ideal. <laughs> and she found a way to make it glow from within, you know, by back backlighting it. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about portraiture a little bit. So she had a portrait studio for a while, and later becomes known nationally as 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 a portrait maker. I don't know how common it was for photographers who were making consciously modernist avant-garde compositions and prints to have had a second life as 
a photographer of portraits for glossy magazines aimed aimed at you know kind of the upper class and their their taste for Cary Grant pictures was that unusual would that have been considered a strange set of twin interests well i think that the magazine that hired her vanity fair had an editor who was frank crowninshield who was very interested in modernist uh, photography so he's the one that hired Cunningham to work for the magazine. There, she's also making portraits that aren't at all modernist, like the absolutely, I mean, almost funny picture of her father at age 90, <laughs> where he's sitting on a woodpile and, and looks like, you know, Santa Claus having just retired from active service. She was very proud of her father, and she wanted to show him as an active older person. And so she photographed him on his woodpile, which he actively kept chopped. The portrait she made of Gertrude Stein in 1934 is not in a super modernist vein, but boy, it sure is super intense. You really get a sense of the force of Stein's personality coming through in that picture. At about the same time, she makes a portrait of Alfred Stieglitz at an American place, a picture that probably not unusually survives in a number of croppings, if you will. How did she make that picture of Stieglitz? And by which I'm asking, how did she kind of pose him in the particular way she did? And why is, is there a reason why it survives in several different versions, one, one definitely longer than the other? She made the picture in 1934 when she went on a trip to New York and she brought her 8x10-inch glass plate negatives, but she didn't bring the camera because it was too bulky to travel with. So she asked to borrow Stieglitz's own 8x10 camera, which was practically an antique. And it had rusty settings, and it was difficult for her to judge the light that was coming through the window. And when she touched the camera, it seemed to rock on the rickety tripod for an eternity before it settled down so she could make the picture. She um, directed Stieglitz to sit and to stand in a couple of different places. And she made seven exposures and they all came out. So that's why we have so many different versions of him at his gallery. He appears kind of to be leaning backward, but simultaneously floating like, like he's not leaning against something. How did she do that? I'm not really sure. I would imagine that he needed to steady himself because he was an older person at the time for a long exposure. You know, he didn't want to make the picture blurry. So he must have been leaning up against something when the picture was being made. And in the background is uh, Jojo O'Keefe's Black Iris, which is now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So in some ways, it's, um, you know, a portrait of Stieglitz and also O'Keeffe's work. I have been raising Cunningham's portraits, um, mostly of pretty well-known people. But her portraiture practice, especially in these years and afterward, is is really broad. She, she's not just photographing famous and famous white people. How did she consider the breadth of her photography practice and who she wanted to include within it? She, uh, Cunningham didn't want to be limited to one particular type of subject matter. 
And she was always challenging herself to try new things and to expand her practice. She was interested in different types of people. So there's a broad variety of people of different racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. She found human beings and their kind of circumstances interesting. So there's a great story about Cary Grant that we'll get to at the very end of when we're talking. So I'm going to leave alone the Cary Grant portrait for now. But I, I, I want to, in, in line with what you just said, she made a portrait in 1935 or 1936 of Helene Meyer, who is posed with a, oh dear, I'm going to get in terminology trouble, a fencing foil, an epee? Yes. Ooh, good. And and I think I think that her story maybe is a good example of the complication of humanity that Cunningham included within her portraiture subjects. Who was Meyer and how did Cunningham come to know her? Meyer was a champion fencer who was Jewish from Germany and she came to Southern California to study and at a certain point Hitler revoked her the program that allowed her to have this internship and also canceled her nationality. He revoked her passport and said she was no longer German. For the Berlin Olympics, the National Socialist Party invited her to participate and represent them in the Olympics. And she went and she won a medal. I believe it was second place. And... Uh, when she came back, she brought Imogen a two by two and a quarter format camera as a gift. So a, m- a much smaller camera than Imogen had been using. Yes, that Imogen could carry this thing around in the streets and make pictures. That was in 1936. So that really opened up a new avenue for Imogen, not having to lug around a heavy camera on a tripod. One of the interesting things to me about about this period in Cunningham's pictures, when, when she goes out in, in, into the street, first of all, she's not making what we now think of as like late 1950s New York City street photography. You know, there's nobody in crosswalks. <laughs> but her pictures uh, become uh, looser and more playful, as you might expect from somebody going from a camera that requires a shoulder and a half to carry to, to, to one that does not. But her images are still very considered, very constructed, really tight. But now she's playing with reflection and mirrors and the construction, not just of the city, San Francisco in this case, but she's constructing compound images that push elements up against the picture plane in in, in ways she really hadn't done before. Was it as simple as a new and different and mobile camera? Or do you think she was looking at and thinking about new things at this time. I think she was trying to take some of her, the aesthetic ideas she had in the early modern period and bring them into her street photography. And she often said that because she had twins, she was interested from the beginning in doubling, that the double was something that was really important in her life and that she brought it into her photography as well. That's interesting because there's a lot of seriality in Cunningham's work starting around this time in the mid-1940s. And then, of course, a little bit later, in the 19, early 1950s, she meets Ruth Asawa, who I suppose it could be argued maybe introduces seriality to, to post-war American art. The Asawa pictures have become enormously better known 
in recent years as the New York art market has embraced Asawa. How did they come to know each other? And did either of them know, understand, or expect how important those photographs would be, not just in making Asawa's work known and better known and kind of defining what it looked like, but also, as it turns out, how they would be installed and displayed in museums and galleries? They met through an association of Cunningham's son uh, with Asawa's husband, the architect Albert Lanier. And they lived at first, they moved a few different times, but they lived at first only six-minute walks from, from where Cunningham had her cottage on Green Street. And I think it was an immediate appreciation of another woman who really believed that she shouldn't sacrifice her career to have a family and have a rich family life so that they had this kind of basis right from the beginning of respect and admiration. A little later in the 1950s, Cunningham makes an extraordinary picture called The Unmade Bed. It's a picture of, well, obviously an unmade bed, but 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 we see we, we see the bed, we see a kind of a blanket and sheet flowing, sitting on the bed with two to four objects sitting on the bed. What what are those objects, and how do you consider this picture? Uh, the objects are hairpins, and Imogen was attending one of Dorothea Lang's classes. And Dorothea Lang gave an instruction to her students to photograph something that they, you know, use all the time. And Imogen got out of bed and it struck her when she looked at the sheets that she could fulfill the needs of this, this assignment. So she threw her hairpins on the bed, which was a way of claiming this space as the woman's space and made the picture and then sent it in to Dorothea Lang so that she could see what she had done. It's an incredibly moving picture because it shows the kind of spirit and presence of a woman without actually showing her there. Yeah, the hairpins, I mean, you know, you're right, they're hairpins. I'm not trying to, I don't, I don't mean to rudely question that at all, but they look more menacing than we think of hairpins as ever looking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then also, of course, there's a sexual subtext going on all the time of people letting down their hair and taking their hairpins out, taking their jewelry off, and the rumple sheets are suggestive of a sexual presence, which wasn't always considered appropriate. You know, Cunningham was grew up in the 19th century where, you know, to infer these kinds of things was only the province of men, not the province of women. And it's another reference to painting in the sense that there are all those Baroque paintings of nude women with their hands in their sheets, in textiles. And this is a very Baroque flowing sheet slash blanket on, on top of the bed. We'll have image on manpodcast.com. It's super sensual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lighting gives the sheet much more than the bed a volume I mean, it gives it a fullness that's really, really something. As, as, as we get near the end of, of Cunningham's career, there are more portraits. She begins, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, printing several negatives together into single images quite often. 
1973, she makes a picture called Another Arm, which is full of art historical, recent art historical references. I, it's impossible to see the picture without thinking of Belmer, surrealism, and violence against women. It's one of a couple pictures, a number of pictures in which she uses, I, I'm using the word mannequins. I don't know if they were mannequins like you see in a, in a Macy's window or what. So here, here she is introducing something into the work when she's 87, which is just, I love that, right? So what is she doing in addressing in, 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 in a picture such as this? What is she adding at, at age 87? <laughs> How that picture came about is that she often went with a photographer friend looking for broken dolls that she could purchase at junk stores and different places that sold a variety of used materials. She would use those doll parts as a way of introducing a certain amount of unease and violence into her pictures, unlike she had ever done before. That was a part of her growing concern for the state of humanity and her anti-war feelings, because this was the time of the Vietnam War, and she was very much against that war. So it was an exploration that she was doing in her older age, looking at pictures as a way of communicating certain ideas that she had without kind of hitting people over the head with them. And I think that's what's happening in the picture of another arm, because we have these plastic white arms that are interposed with an arm of an Asian American photographer. Each of the last six or seven photographs in the show slash book feature hands. Yes. Hands was one of the subject matters that she kept on coming back to. I think she learned that from her study of, of painting. Early on in her life, she looked at many different books. And then later on in 1910, she went on a grand tour and spent time in European museums. And if you look at one of those older paintings, portrait that includes hands, and then you kind of block out the hands, uh, you see how much power the picture loses. I promised we would get back to Cary Grant. I've tried to avoid talking about biography a lot here, but it would be just wrong to close talking about Cunningham without mentioning her famous appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Cunningham uh, made a portrait of Cary Grant in 1932. You know, God, four decades later, whatever it was, four and a half decades later, she's on The Tonight Show and Cary Grant comes comes up again. First, do you have any thoughts on the Cary Grant portrait? Secondly, what, how did Cary Grant happen to come up as she and Johnny were sitting on the couch talking? She was asked to do this portrait of Cary Grant, and she went down to Los Angeles and went to his home, and she tried to find a place to make a picture, and she wasn't satisfied, so she asked him out into the yard where she posed him. She managed to capture a kind of a very soft picture of him looking somewhat introspective and vulnerable, which isn't the kind of typical way that celebrities were pictured at the time. So it comes across as very powerful and, and kind of personal and intimate. So then later on, when she went on the Carson show, she talked about having come to Hollywood before to make pictures for Vanity Fair and that when Crown and Shield asked her what she wanted to do. She said, give me the ugly men. They're not vain and they don't complain. So Carson then asked her if she considered Grant ugly. And she replied, no, he convinced me he wasn't. And of course, everybody 
started laughing. And that was the moment that she really blew everyone out of the water. Everyone wanted to be, to talk to her, to all the guests lingered after the show to speak with her. It was a triumph. Yeah, she was about 90 at the time, too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Paul Martineau, thanks very much. Thank you. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Marie Watt. We talked in 2020 when the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and the Museum of Native American History, both in Bentonville, Arkansas, presented an exhibition of Watt's work called Companion Species. Now, the University of San Diego is presenting a survey of Watt's printmaking titled Storywork, The Prince of Marie Watt. It's on view through May 13th. The Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Mass., is showing each other, Marie Watt and Knupa Hanska Luger, an exhibition that spotlights the two artists' shared interests in collaboration, community engagement, materiality, and the land. It's on view through May 8th. Marie Watt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's nice to be here. Let's talk about the work that Crystal Bridges has acquired and that's up in companion species there. It makes use of a, to use a phrase I've never used before, speech bubble-like form. (laughs) 
that has been in your work for the last two or three years. I think maybe first in a work called Companion Species, Calling Companion Species, that's now in the collection of the Schnitzer Museum at Washington State. What about that shape or that form or whatever word is appropriate attracts you to it? For me, that form is like a megaphone. It is speech bubble-like, as you mentioned. It also sometimes can start to resemble a tongue. I think the thing about the shape is that it has a sense of communicating something that is in motion or that's in progress or that is getting louder. And that is important to me about that. So another thing about this megaphone-like form you're using is that you've also been using words on that form, often lots of words. And words have been a key component of your work for a while now, often in ways that play with shape and, and simple graphic forms and colors. Who or what brought text words into the work? In this current body of work, I've been really asking the question, what would the world look like if we thought of ourselves as companion species? And in asking that question, I started listening to the song What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. And in some ways, that song and the lyrics really started to resonate with me and the sense that Marvin Gaye in that song is asking or calling people, family members, mother, mother, brother, brother, sister, sister, father, father. He's making this call. But I realize this call is not just to family members. It's actually a call to community. It's a call to me and it's a call to other people. And it's a call that is that really recognizes our relatedness. And in that call, what I realized is that it's also the way as a Seneca indigenous person, it's the way I understand my relationship to community as well. And so I saw this intersection between what I like to refer to as Marvin Gaye knowledge intersecting with indigenous knowledge about our relatedness. You mentioned that this recent body of work is called companion species. So it's companion species something, for example. What about the idea or the concept of companion species interested you? So my interest in the word companion species comes from the Seneca and Iroquois teaching that animals are our first teachers. And this really relates to the Iroquois uh, origin story about Sky Woman who falls or perhaps is pushed from a hole in the sky world. And as she falls, she is helped first by birds and then this motley crew of animals who help her settle in what we now refer to as Turtle Island. And so in my tribe, we acknowledge this historic relationship with animals by naming our clans after animals. I come from a matrilineal community and I am from the Turtle Clan, but my enrollment rights and voting rights and land ownership rights and I think I've listed them all. These rights are passed on through our mothers. But I think really the thing that was really important to me in thinking about companion species was it was an opportunity to think about not just how we're related to animals, but I think it opens up an important and necessary conversation about how we're also connected intimately to the environment. 
So a couple times you've mentioned community and the importance of, of community as informing your work. And of course, community foregrounds itself in the making of your work. What about having large groups of people coming together at museums or universities or wherever? What about that as a process is important to you? You know, I think early on, I participated with community thinking that it was similar to a barn raising. And so it would be this opportunity to get together and kind of many hands make light work and I'll feed you. And then I will roll up my sleeves and and help you as well. And I think what I quickly realized is that one of the things I so enjoy about collaborating with community and hosting open to the community sewing circles, for example, is that something is made when I set the table. And what is made is created by everybody in the space at that time. And so when I look at a piece that might be finished, if, if work is ever finished, but when I, when I look at a piece that might be finished, I can't just see that object on a wall. I am reminded of all of the sensory experiences and conversations that are connected to that artwork. And so I think what I enjoy most about the community engagement is getting together with people who are um, from different generations. And I enjoy people who come together from different disciplines. And I also really value this kind of cross-cultural exchange that happens. And it's always my hope that when people leave, maybe they've perhaps met somebody and walk away with a, a new a new friend or that they feel more connected in the world for having participated in that moment because they helped build something which is really hard to define. But I think those who were there carry that, that with them. They continue to carry that with them. And I and I guess I can say I know I I do. I, I feel like in that, that space, I am always a maybe a teacher and a learner. And I, and I think teacher almost sounds too, too formal, but I feel like it's a privilege to be in conversation with people in that space. And, and truthfully, when people's eyes are down and they're working with something as familiar with, as with cloth, stories just tend to flow. The way it usually works when you bring dozens or scores of people together at sewing circles is the thing or things they make at those sewing circles are then taken by you back to your studio where they are made into larger works made up of these objects that other people have contributed to. You have talked before about how you can see, and indeed any viewer looking at one of your works on the wall in front of that person can see the markers of different hands acting on different pieces of textile that people who sew sew differently. And so they're leaving behind not quite a signature, but there are markers of difference between what different people have made. Why do you like that? What about, what about that works for you? I think that the work becomes bigger than the sum of apart. And I I think that there's this expanded vocabulary that happens that just couldn't happen alone. There's so many different things. I've I've been working with 
particularly maybe since 2007 or 2010, embroidery has become more predominant in the open to the community sewing circle work. And I think you really get a sense of people's hand and stitches. And then when text became part of the content of what was being stitched, all of a sudden I see those stitches almost being more of an extension of a, a participant's body. And, and it's as if like, like words, you can see the cadence of their voice in a stitch. It's such a particular mark and expression. And in a way, like it's imprinting, not just that mark, but it also kind of bears the conversation and everything else that was taking place in that moment is suddenly like loaded into that stitch as well. Stitches. I feel oddly qualified to interview you because I'm a human being and your most famous interview was not conducted with, with a human being. <laughs> so three and a half years ago, you conducted a conversation for the College Art Association's art journal with a coyote. And not just any coyote, a, a specific coyote. So whose, whose coyote was that, so to speak? And why did you choose to have that conversation in, in art journal that way? I know I need to think about this. It was a very, very important meeting because I had learned from my ancestors and art historians about this coyote and they shapeshifted to meet me and to share in a conversation about my work, but also about the artist Joseph Boyce. And I think that that interview was so important because when I first learned about Joseph Boyce, I thought that maybe he was taking the shamanistic practices, this, this performance aspect and ritual aspect of his work, the way he was connecting it to this relative of mine, it begged further conversation. Well, we'll have a link to the conversation from manpodcast.com. So let me kind of follow up with a blunter question, which is why did you want to talk to a coyote in print? <laughs> <laughs> I think I wanted to talk to a coyote in print because I do think of animals as our first teachers and I realized how this animal was central to Joseph Boyce's practice. And as a person who works with blankets and who has actually some similar interests in how actions might bring community together, I mean, I kind of, you know, it's funny, I feel like I have this very complex relationship with Joseph Boyce, because on one hand, he's probably the figure that sort of opened up Western art to me in this, this kind of interesting way when I was studying abroad. And on the other hand, I think one of the reasons I connected with that work was because I understood it from this indigenous perspective. And so, but then it, it also made me question 
his authority to be doing the work. And I thought it was important that if he was going to use a coyote for his, or you, well, I guess it is use, if he was going to have this interview or this meeting with the coyote as for his first visit to the United States, and he was not going to see anything, do anything else, see anything else, but have this private meeting with a coyote, then it seemed to me that it needed, that coyote needed to have, like the, in, the actual indigenous connection that Boyce was referencing needed to be further amplified and examined by an indigenous artist, me. So I think that that was part of it. And, and I will say, like, I, there's certain things I really like about Joseph Boyce. And one of my favorite things is this, this notion that people who want to learn should be able to come together with people who want to teach. He believed in this like kind of notion of the free university. And he was actually sacked and like sacked from his position in Dusseldorf because I believe he let people, people in without paying tuition. And I suspect that part of my interest and teaching at a community college for a decade was really linked to that and also having a mentor who was a community college instructor as examples of where education could be accessible to more people. You know, there's that there's that aspect too. He's a complex he's a complex figure in in my personal my personal narrative, but one that I'm grateful for too. About the time you had that conversation, he says, extending the conceit. <laughs> You were making a lot of artworks that featured dogs or and or coyotes. And I think what strikes me about those works is you're not using a dog or coyote as a stand-in for a single idea, not as not allegory, not not as a single allegory, not as a single metaphor. But 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 in lots of ways, and indeed referencing lots of different cultural traditions from Roman mythology to to things closer to home, if you will. Was part of your interest in dogs and coyotes that they were this particularly both malleable and universal and thus, to an artist, useful thing? I Like, when I started to ask this question, what would the world be like if we considered ourselves ex- companion species, I wondered what would be the appropriate animal to be in this conversation with. and. I arrived at dogs, partly dogs, canines, wolves, coyotes, the she-wolf. It seemed like the correct entry point because of this rich history of how canines are, you know, prominent in in myths and coyote stories and in our tribe we have the wolf as a as a clan and I was interested in how dogs are portrayed in the history of of art. I actually like one of the images that is really important to me is this image of the she-wolf with Remus and Romulus because it really created this opening after looking at it for so long thinking about this word mother. Like, what, what is a mother? 
I want to close by asking by, about the works you've made over the last decade or so that reference Brancusi's endless column form, such as Skywalker, Skyscraper, Babel from 2012, which is a work that is in the forthcoming Denver Art Museum show, I think. What about Brancusi's endless column interested you as something to to build upon and depart from, both at the same time, of course? I have always been drawn to the way Brancusi has brought together different materials, like hard and soft. And I would say soft, meaning maybe wood, or maybe I should say like cold and warm, hard and soft, shiny and matte, like different textures coming together. And in a way, like, I think that the materials that he introduces in his work radically change the foundation of where sculpture goes from that moment, at least within that particular canon. And so those are, those are some of the, the things that draw me to that, that particular to that connection, I would say, but then there's also these other references. So the reference wasn't just Brancusi. The reference was growing up in the Pacific Northwest and being indigenous person in this urban environment and being surrounded by Coast Salish totem poles and also being in the Pacific Northwest also the, there's the conifers. There's my closet, my linen closet that's sort of like always stuffed to the gills until it's sort of straightened and then it gets stuffed to the gills again. So there's all these different references with, with those, those columns or those columnar forms. And then really early on, I, I realized that these blankets weren't just like these modular. It's not just a modular t- material. For me, it's a material that's coded. It's a material that means specific things to me as an indigenous person and to other indigenous people in their respective communities. It is an object that might be a marker for memory and story for you. And I think that that's where working with blankets sort of, I'm going to re say this, but when I started using blankets, I think that the more I listened to that material, then the work began to evolve and and ask new questions. And and it and in a way, like I don't think I really anticipated being a person who would be working with blankets for almost two decades. Well, speaking of the the open endedness of the reference to Brancusi's endless column, because it's more of a because I think what you're doing is more nodding toward it than descending from it. One of the forms I see in those works is the form of an obelisk. Obelisks in the European tradition are kind of simultaneously celebrating conquest and are memorial and have within them some colonial, what we would now call colonial references. They operate, I think, or have operated a little differently in the American tradition. Are you interested in there being a relationship between work such as Skywalker Skyscraper and the obelisk form? I definitely am aware of how the forms are 
similar, but I think the actual intent is quite opposite. Yeah, it's kind of it's a queering of the form. I want to I want to make let me let me make let me make clear that I'm I'm pointing to the queering of the form, not to the supporting of its origins. Right, right. No, and I think one of the things that that is really important to me about using blankets in these forms is that in a way there they are these domestic objects that are storied objects in our lives and and hopefully when you see a blanket that looks familiar your story is what becomes part of that monument and so it radically kind of subverts this idea of celebrating conquest in part because it can be anybody's story that's in that monument and it can be a person it's a personal story and i think that like one of the things that i like about working with bronze in particular and the casting process of one of the things that i've done in my practice is i've uh, worked with walla walla foundry on casting blankets in a way that the blanket gets incinerated in the casting process but what is left is this impression of the original object this almost exact impression of the original object and then i'm interested in how blankets as a monument change the story of the history used to recognize military leaders and equestrian statues and and other you know figures from from history for me that it's a i think the history of these ordinary objects that we imprint upon that receive us into the world that accompany our departures i think those stories are really important and i think sometimes our focus is taken away or not or our focus is directed to I guess I'm just I'm just interested in directing our attention to those stories. I get I I want to think of them as not being in competition with other headline grabbing stories because I actually think that these these stories are what make us human and they're the stories that connect us to one another and they're yeah, they're the stories that matter. There's this elder who recently passed away. His name is Gordon Battles, and he was from the Klamath tribe. And he likes to say, my story changes when I know your story. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why community matters to me. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate conversations like this. It's one of the reasons why I want us, that is humans, to recognize our relationship with animals and the environment, because we live in a fragile ecosystem and it's going to take us working together to create a future for the next generation. Marie Watt, thank you. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.